Our reading for this morning comes from Luke 23, 32 to 43 in the New Living Translation. Two others, both criminals, were led out to be executed with him. When they came to a place called the Skull, they nailed him to the cross. And the criminals were also crucified, one on his right and one on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. And the soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice. The crowd watched, and the leaders scoffed. He saved others, they said. Let him save himself if he is really God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers mocked him, too, by offering him a drink of sour wine. They called out to him, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. A sign was fastened above him with these words, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals hanging beside him scoffed, so you're the Messiah, are you? Prove it by saving yourself and us, too, while you're at it. But the other criminal protested, don't you fear God even when you have been sentenced to die? We deserve to die for our crimes, but this man hasn't done anything wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, I assure you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is the word of the Lord. This text is, is interesting in that it begins, as, as Meg read a moment ago, that, that there were two other criminals, both criminals were led out to be executed with him. Um, and when they came to this place called the Skull, um, they were nailed to the cross. The criminals were also crucified on the right and on the left, it says. And uh, what's interesting to me a little bit about this is that you know, it just refers to them as criminals. It doesn't give them a name. Um, however, in, the, in, in a, an apocryphic book, on actually an old Latin manuscript, the book of the Acts of Pilate, uh, didn't make it into our scriptural book here. Uh, into, our, into our canon of 66 books, but uh, they're actually, their names are given to us. Um, Joas and Magatras are their names. Now, I don't, maybe that's just myth or history, who knows, but I'm glad they gave them names because I kind of like it. We're talking about the faces of our faith. I like to know the names of the faces of the faces that we're talking about in our faith. In our faith. Man, alive. That's like a tongue-tie twist, isn't it? And so here you have these two, man, these two men, these two Joathis and Magatris, because I'd rather not just refer to them as thieves, because they're more than the sum of their decisions or this moment, are they not? And in this moment, one of the criminals hanging beside them, and besides Jesus, in verse 39, scoffs and says, you're the Messiah, aren't you? Prove it by saying to yourself and to us while you're at it, save us all. I kind of wonder when I hear that, this man, this kind of angry response, right? Because you have two different responses from the two different people on the cross. He's kind of ticked, right? He's kind of angry. He's upset in this moment. Why is he angry? I I think he probably has a lot of reasons to be angry. In that culture and society, if you steal, what happens? Well, you're going to end up on a cross. So it's probably not like just like a hobby or a fun thing he did with his friends on a Saturday afternoon. Like, let's see if we can get away with stealing something from the, the local restaurant or store. It was most likely because of his lot and his in life. It was the way he probably made a living. It was the way that he survived. It was because he probably lived in some type of lower social class in some way, and this was how he was a survivor. I wonder, as I hear this anger coming out of him, if, if, if as he looks over at Jesus hanging on the cross, if he can't help but be angry that God gave him this lot in life, that this is where he's ended up, that this is where the sum of his choices and the sum of his misfortune has led him, and he's angry. And he's like, God, Prove yourself to me. If you're God, you haven't done anything for me in this life. Prove in this moment that you won't just save yourself off that cross, but save me too in this moment. And save the one on the other side of you. Perhaps he's angry for that reason. What is even more interesting is the two names that were given for these men in the book of Acts of Pilate, um, they are not Jewish names. 
These are Greek names. These are Greek names that most likely these were Gentiles, which is interesting because there's a sign above Jesus' head that said what in the scripture today? King of the Jews. So this man is not a Jew, so likely by association he wouldn't be thinking, this is my king. So why would he be so bold to ask that this man, who is not his king, has not been claimed to be his king, would do something for him, a Greek Gentile? Yet he asks this man, Jesus, for something. He's angry and he's defensive and he's upset because perhaps he doesn't think he deserves this death. Perhaps he doesn't think that the the sum of the choices in his life have led him to this moment and he wants Jesus to show up and do something about it. It's interesting if you think about uh, the Enneagram, if you're familiar with that, it's a personality test. If you're not familiar with it, I encourage you to Google Enneagram test this week and maybe take it. It's something that we use a lot here at Imago to be able to sort of understand one another, understand ourselves. And, uh, and the Enneagram test, uh, it's, uh, it kind of, it'd be revealing for you some of the things you'd find out. But one of the things you, you would find out are sort of what is your dominant emotion depending on where you fall. And often, where we sometimes when we lose contact with our core self, what is the dominant emotion that often will come out? And it's interesting for folks who are nines, ones, and eights on the Enneagram, anger is the default emotion. It's the one that you will feel the most and the deepest. What's that? That's you. Amen. Okay, you're identifying. Yeah. Can I get a witness? Anyone? Okay. Yeah. And, I, and, I, and it's interesting because depending on what number you are, you respond to your anger differently. So if you're a nine, you'll deny your anger as if to say, what anger? You know anybody like that? Maybe you're a nine. Maybe you are a nine. If, if you don't know anybody like that, you're probably a nine. Um, maybe if you're a one, maybe you attempt to control or repress your anger. If you're an eight, you just act out your anger. You're usually pretty in touch with it. I'm wondering if perhaps this guy is clearly not denying it or trying to push it down. Maybe he's just having a weak moment, but maybe he's an eight. Maybe he's acting out his anger in this moment, and he is just very upset, and he wants to make that known to Jesus and everyone else present. So if you're, if you're a five or a six or a seven, um, your response when you have this deep emotion that rises up in you, when you sort of, uh, your dominant emotion when you disconnect from your core self, is that of fear. Now, if you're a five, that means that you have fear about the outer world and about um, your capacity to cope with everything that's happening. If you're a six, you exhibit the most fear of all the three types largely experienced as anxiety. And if you're a seven, you often avoid feelings of pain and loss and deprivation and general anxiety because you just are fearful of what those things will mean and do manifest in you. So I don't know if he's experiencing fear or if he's experiencing anger. I don't really know what Enneagram number is. I mean, they tell you not to guess other people's Enneagram's number, but I have fun with it all the time. (laughs) I don't know where he lies in all of this, but what I do know is he's clearly afraid and he's clearly angry. And those emotions are dominating his conversation with Jesus. But I think we're so quick to judge him in this moment as the bad one, right? Or as the, the one that's not good or the one who doesn't understand. But maybe that's not at all. Maybe he's just the one who just expressing his emotions and his disconnection with all that his life has been in a way that's just different than what we would deem as acceptable. Also, we have no idea all the conversation that happened that day. We just know the lines that were given to us in this story. Who knows what other conversations and back and forth occurred? Who knows what happened in this man's life or what led him here? Who knows how he viewed God or how he even viewed the Jewish community? And so while this one man is concerned about what is happening to him, 
The other man on the other side of the cross is worried about what's happening to Jesus. And in verse 40 it says, But the other criminal protested, Don't you fear God? Even when you have been sentenced to death, we deserve to die for our crimes, he says. But this man, Jesus, he hasn't done anything wrong. Verse 42 says, Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. What an extravagant ask to a man who also was a Greek Gentile. Again, king of the Jews is over the head of Jesus. What would make this Gentile Greek man think that Jesus would welcome him, the king of the Jews, into a kingdom? That he would even include him, yet he asks this extravagant thing to be remembered. There's a story of Alexander the Great, uh, and there was one of his generals came to him because his daughter, his only daughter, was getting married, and he wanted to be able to give him a big wedding, give her a big wedding. But he didn't have a lot of means, and, F, and he really wanted this one daughter that he was ever going to have because he was old in age to be able to have this extravagant wedding so that he could show her how much he loved her and cared about her. And so he made this bold ask, and he came before Alexander the Great, and he said, I really want to give my one daughter an incredible wedding. Would you be willing to throw my daughter a wedding, an extravagant wedding. At which Alexander the Great responds, sure, I'll do that. The general walks away just amazed and excited by this, and one of the attendants, uh, attendants to Alexander the Great overheard the whole conversation and said, why would you do that? Why did you agree to that ask? He said, because he paid me two great compliments. He said, one, he paid the compliment that he knew I was wealthy and had lots of resources. And two, because he really believed that I would do it. He really believed that I would extend this extravagant generosity. When I hear this story today, I can't help but wonder what made this man ask this extravagant question of generosity to be seen and loved by a man who never even claimed to be his king. What made this Gentile man look over at Jesus hanging on a cross and ask him to remember him. What was it about him that gave him such boldness to ask this? I wonder if perhaps he had shared a jail cell with Barabbas. And perhaps the day that Barabbas was brought before the Jewish people as, as uh, an offering of trade, Barabbas or Jesus, which one do you want, as was often given as the custom each year. And the people chose to free Barabbas and to imprison Jesus I wonder if perhaps Barabbas didn't return and Jesus came into the cell afterwards. I mean, Jesus did go with these two men to the cross. I wonder if they shared a cell. I wonder if there were more conversations that have happened. I wonder if they wondered why Barabbas didn't come back, why the Jewish people found Jesus to be such a threat that they would free Barabbas, who was an insurrectionist of the state, I wonder if they had heard that Pilate, when he pronounced Jesus being sent to the cross, that he didn't see there was anything, re a reason for why Jesus was to be crucified. And so he literally, Pilate literally washes his hands and says, I am innocent of his blood. His life is on your hands. Pilate only sending Jesus to the cross because the Jewish crowd was getting rowdy and excited and upset and angry that Pilate wasn't doing what they asked. And so in order to prevent a riot, he thought, oh, I'll free Barabbas, but that wasn't good enough. And so he sentenced Jesus to death. I wonder if this man hanging on a cross next to Jesus, if he had known that Pilate had declared this man innocent, yet still he was hanging on a cross. 
I wonder. I wonder what made this man realize that Jesus was innocent. What I also find interesting about this man hanging on the other side of the cross is that he acknowledges that he's made mistakes. This passion narrative of Jesus' um, final days and hours on the earth, it's full of people making mistakes, is it not? It's full of, of Peter showing up and cutting off the ear of someone in the act of violence and Jesus saying, probably shouldn't have done that, healing it and making it whole. It's full of the disciples abandoning Jesus at their trial, their close friend. It's full of Judas' greed leading him to turn his back and embezzle the funds and to sell Jesus out. It's full of mistakes of two criminals we see now hanging on the cross in either side of him, reflecting on their choices. The story of Christ's final hours is full of people making mistakes. And it's also full of people acknowledging them and seeing them and trying to grapple with them and full of them grappling with it in a variety of ways. And yet this man hanging on the other side of the cross, he acknowledges, I was a thief. I made poor choices. And, and somehow deep inside of him, he thinks that this is a worthy punishment for his crimes. Why did this man on the left side of the cross think he deserved such a gruesome death by Roman society? What in Roman society had taught him and made him believe that this was an equal and fair punishment? How did this penalty meet the crime? I can remember when I was at Moody Bible Institute, there was a, a, a guy on the dorm floor that was a couple floors ahead of, uh, above me. And he would often be asked every year to share in chapel his testimony and often would go from each dorm floor, all 20 floors, and would share his testimony on Thursday nights. And his story was kind of gripping, but that's why people asked him to share it all the time. He had come straight from Moody Bible Institute from a five-year prison sentence. He had applied to go to Moody while in prison where he became a Christian. And every time he would tell his story in chapel or on the dorms floors, he would say these words, I spent five years in prison and I deserved every minute of it. At one point, I remember somebody asking him, what did you spend five years in prison for? He would tell his story over and over again, but never tell anybody why he was in prison, which left rumors, you know, just running through the institution of what maybe he had done. And so finally, someone just asked, which I was grateful for, and I'll never forget his answer. He said, I was in there for a drug offense. And I remember sitting in the chair in the dorm room when he answered that. I remember thinking, and do you think you deserve five years every minute in, in, in prison for a drug offense? What you needed was a detox program and a recovery program. I thought that is cruel and unusual punishment. And if I could go back now and speak up, and as I wish I had, I would have told him these things. I would have said, I would have reminded him that it was healthy for him to admit that he had a problem and to acknowledge how his drug addiction had caused harm to his own body and the relationships in his life. How his drug addiction had caused him to steal from friends and family and that for that he probably needed to ask for forgiveness and work towards reconciliation and making that right. I would have said that it was good and healthy for him to ask his child or his ex-girlfriend to Forgive him for the ways that he let them down and allowed his addiction to choose the addiction over them. And I would have said it's good and healthy for you to work towards building trust and relationship with those folks again. And it's good and healthy for you to have sought help 
But I just want you to know it is not good and healthy that you think you deserve to be punished for your addiction or for your choices. Our God is a God of reconciliation and healing and restoration, and instead you have been isolated, filled with guilt and shame that has crippled you and forced you to not be able to see yourself as one who deserves the full dignity and love of God. And I don't know about you, but that just doesn't sound like good news to me. And here there's this man hanging on a cross, dying on a cross for stealing. And here he thinks that he deserves his gruesome punishment on the cross because he has been told by society and perhaps by many that this is a just punishment for such an evil person who would sin, who would make a mistake. If I could go back, I would also tell him to not refer to himself as a felon. Every time he would give his testimony, he'd say, I'm a felon. And I would remind him, you are not a felon. You may have a felony, but that does not define you. Stop punishing yourself. Stop believing that somehow there is something wrong with you. There's a difference between guilt and shame, and Brene Brown does a beautiful draw, drawing, a picture for us of this. Brene Brown says shame is a focus on self. Guilt is a focus on behavior. Shame is, I am bad. Guilt is, I did something bad. How many of you, if you did something hurtful to me, would be willing to say, I'm sorry, I made a mistake? But how many of you would be willing to say that? Guilt says, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. Shame says, I'm sorry, I am a mistake. And every time this man would share his testimony on the floor, I would think to myself, he doesn't, he, he, he doesn't just think he made a mistake, he, think he's, he thinks he is a mistake. That somehow he is inherently wrong and bad and deserves to be punished and the loss of all that he's had in his life. I wonder if this man on the other side of the cross is, is a picture for us of somebody who is able to hold the tension of acknowledging that he has done something wrong, but also he is deeply believing something about himself, perhaps that he thinks he is inherently wrong and bad and deserves this death. I wonder if he's inviting us to be able to see ourselves not as one who is overwhelmed with shame and condemnation, but one who can hold the reality that, yes, we are guilty of making mistakes and causing harm, but none of us deserve what this man has gone through. None of us deserve to view ourselves as basically throwawayable, but instead as an invitation to reconciliation and healing. I can't help but wonder in this moment if the reason that he had the audacity to ask Jesus to remember him as he came into his kingdom was because just a few verses earlier in this passage, as Jesus hangs on the cross and as we had discussion about earlier, Jesus says to the men who are literally gambling off his clothes and are spewing hatred at him and have literally driven the nails into his body, Jesus says what? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. I wonder if as he heard those words, he thought, if Jesus can forgive those men who've done this to him, then surely he can forgive me. And surely I can forgive myself if he can invite them and God forgiveness. I can't help but wonder. And perhaps this man who believes he's getting what he deserves for the first time is extending some form of self-compassion. So I went through the other numbers on the Enneagram, but you may notice I left a few numbers out. I left a few numbers out, being uh, that of 2, 3, and 4. 
Two threes and fours on the Enneagram, our core emotion, when we disconnect from our core self, is shame. Is shame. I am a three on the Enneagram. And so when I experience any form of disconnection from myself and my core emotion that rises is that of I will often deny my shame and potentially be the most out of touch with underlying my feelings of inadequacy. When I feel shame, I want to sort of like push it away. I want to just not think about it and it's not there. I, I, just, I just can't handle it. I can't hold it. And so my challenge as a three is to always be able to take criticism or things that I hear or uh, guilt that I carry and to not allow it to become shame to say, well, Josh, you're bad. But to be able to say, but sometimes you make bad choices. To be able to sit with that in times when it's difficult to be able to say, okay, I have made this choice that wasn't good. I made this mistake. How can I work towards reconciliation and making that whole again? How can I work towards living into that in a better way and not allowing it to literally eat me alive? That's how I have to work. And I wonder if this man on the other side of the cross, I wonder if his core emotion was shame as well. I wonder if he was grappling with that in himself. Twos, they often attempt to control their shame by getting other people to like them and think of them as good people. And fours on the Enneagram often attempt to control their shame by focusing on how unique and special their particular talents and feelings and personal characteristics are. Basically, I'm good because I'm focusing on these other things and so look away from me in this area. I wonder, I wonder, I wonder what this man's heart and posture was. As he grappled with his shame. Or perhaps I wonder if as he neared the end of his life, as he began to take his final breaths and as his lungs began to fill with blood and as he couldn't bear the strength to pull himself up anymore, I wonder if the space between here and eternity, between what he knew in this life and what he saw coming in the next became a little bit thinner. I've had the opportunity throughout my life to be able to to be with people in some of their final moments of their lives. Every so often, though, I've been invited to be with people in their final moments of their lives by family members, and when I got there, they said, I don't want to see them. I don't want to see him. In many ways, it was because I was a representative of God for them. And they were angry like the van on the other side of the cross. They were angry that their life had led them here. They were upset. And there were others on the other side of the cross, like this other man, that when I arrived in their final moments of their life, they had much to share had much to confess, much heavy hearts to work through, many things they wanted to express to loved ones and reconciliation that they desired. But one of the things that I have also can recall is the things that people begin to see. My grandmother, for instance, as she passed, uh, I remember uh, hearing, I wasn't there, but it was communicated back to me that my grandparents, my great-grandparents, were in the room with her and she saw them. And they were talking with her and preparing to usher her over into eternity. I asked Linda if, if I could share about her son James when she shared a story information this last week. Uh, James passed away, and uh, bef- a week before he passed, he uh, was sitting with Linda, and he could be, begin to smile on his face, and he wasn't extremely verbal uh, because of some former medical challenges that he had gone through. And that it basically caused him to, and the family, to be able to be very sensitive to his smiling and to facial expressions and to emotion. 
And they could see he was staring off to something in the room, and he was very happy. And Linda asked him what he was seeing, and he said, I can see God. And of course, Linda asked, well, what does God look like? In which James responded back and said, I can't tell you. When I heard Linda share that this week, I thought of the words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians, who also experienced this thin space between eternity and earth. And he said, when he returned after this sight, he said he is astounded that by what he saw that he could not even be expressed in words and things that no human is allowed to tell. And I thought about this man hanging on a cross, both men hanging on a cross with their lives so thin, moments away from their final breaths, looking at this man Jesus in between them. And I wondered for a moment if perhaps, perhaps for just a moment, if this man on the one side of the cross, that as he looked at Jesus, he could see God. And he could see, despite what others had said about him and had spoken of him, he could see a man turned into divine, inviting him and welcoming him like my grandparents were invited and welcomed to follow their ancestors into the land of the unknown, into the land of the mystery, into the land that can't be spoken of or found words to describe. I don't know what led this man in this final moments to invite and ask Jesus to remember him. But what I do love is that Jesus' final words were, Today, you'll be with me in paradise. Today, Jesus reminds this man that he shall not be defined by his crimes, by his choices, that shame and guilt will not keep him from the love of God, but that he sees for that moment in time, perhaps he could see himself the way that God saw him as he looked over to the other side of the cross. So I invite us this morning, invite us to perhaps extend that same self-compassion to ourselves that Jesus extends to this man, to not be crippled by shame, but to take what this man shows us today, to be able to acknowledge our sin and at the same time know that we have worshiped a God who always moves us towards grace and reconciliation. Let us find a healthy balance of admitting both the frailty of our humanity while seeing in ourselves and in a God we worship, a God who is so loving, is so patient, a God who would extend mercy and grace beyond the Jews, but to those who would be called heretics and those to whom would be called Gentiles, a God who offered extravagant love and welcomed into eternity both of these men, I believe. Why? Because they were loved and beloved. Why? because neither of them deserved this terrible punishment. Neither of them deserved the ways in which they viewed themselves, the way in which the world viewed them. But instead, a loving God who could reveal to them the way that that God sees them. My prayer this morning is that we would see ourselves the way God sees us, that we would look to these men on the cross and be reminded of our own selves and be reminded even further that God says to us, that we are loved and beloved children of God and whom we will see in paradise.